Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Father, we rejoice in your word as we hear this duty of love proclaimed. We pray, Lord, that we would hear these words and that we would seek to live them by your grace. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Whenever people ask my wife Lori and I to share the romantic story of how we came together, we actually prefer two different episodes. If you ask Lori, the story she likes to tell is the embarrassing and to me quite humiliating story of my lame attempt at a romantic proposal, which I'm not going to share with you. I prefer to tell the story of our first date. Lori and I were both parties in the wedding of a mutual friend. Uh, She was a bridesmaid, and I was the reader in the ceremony. And our first date was during the rehearsal for the wedding. Uh, And people who are parties in the wedding are meant to be at the rehearsals. And, And things went so well. Uh, that we were a little bit late. That was okay. The bride had played matchmaker, so she was okay with it. But I always like to start with that story. I don't usually, though, go into the details of the wedding itself, but in the wedding, as the reader, I had two readings to give, one of them from Scripture and the other one from poetry. Now, do you think you could guess which passage of Scripture it was my job to read in the service. It was 1 Corinthians 13, which is a very common passage to be read. The poem, though, was a poem by Christopher Marlowe called The Passionate Shepherd to His Love. It's the one that begins with the couplet, come live with me and be my love and we will all the pleasures prove. And at the time, it sounded to me like they were speaking the same language, this passage from scripture in this poem from this famous poet, but now when I go back and I read them, I see that the emphasis is a little bit different. In fact, maybe there's some tension between these two conceptions of love. We might think of it as the conflict between agape and eros, the conflict between divine love and human love. The poet's persuasive, passionate love in the poem is in stark contrast from the way that the Apostle Paul writes about love in 1 Corinthians 13. Listen to Paul's words. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I was kind of wondering what Christopher Marlowe would have done, given the opportunity to write 1 Corinthians 13, how his description of love might have differed from Paul's. Because I think love, poetic love, in that classic sense, does differ uh, with apologies to Marlowe, who was a better poet than me. Perhaps it would have gone something like this. Love is impatient and all-demanding. Love is possessive and proud. It does not stand on ceremony or put up with obstacles or suffer itself to be constrained by morals and manners. Nothing is wrong when it's done for love, for love rejoices in fulfillment. Love demands all things, supersedes all things, expects all things, and must have all things. And maybe in that you can hear the tension a little more clearly. The two loves contrasted, divine and human. Yet to many people, divine love doesn't sound like love much at all. Sure, it's true, Christians talk a lot about love. They even claim that God is love. But when you listen to them and the way that they talk about things, it sounds more like what they care about is law. And perhaps that's another conflict to think about, the conflict between love and law. This episode from Matthew 22 invites us to think about the relationship between the law of God on the one hand and the love of God on the other. Jesus is asked another question in this series of questions. And this one is fascinating to me because this one is posed to him by a lawyer, a scribe, a student of the law. And it's not as much of a trick question as some of the others. He asks the question in order to test Jesus. But when you look at this passage and you compare it to the same event in the other gospels, you see there's a lot going on here. This lawyer comes up and says, hey, what's your favorite law? What do you think the best law is? What's the greatest law? It sounds like a nerdy sort of lawyerly question. But there's more to it than that, I think. It's a different kind of test. And we know collectively the Pharisees set out with the aim of tempting and testing Jesus. They have to be happy to see the way that he shut up the Sadducees, their rivals, but that doesn't make them friends. They still want to get one over on Jesus. So collectively they have that motivation, but this lawyer is complicated. This guy poses a question, Matthew says, to test Jesus. But this is the same guy who, after this interaction, Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom. And the same guy who, in another account of this event, when he hears Jesus' answer, says, yes, exactly, and then basically starts preaching Jesus' message for him. Once again, we see Jesus operating on a higher plane than his adversaries. Here, he's asked a question about law, and instead of law, he answers with love, right? which is great. Right? Many people, when they read this story, that's kind of the way 
that the story comes off, right? The Old Testament, that's about law. But here Jesus hits the reset button. Jesus shows that from now on, there's, there's I don't know, a, a new Lord in town, and we're not going to do things in that stuffy, legalistic way that we did back in the Old Testament. Now we're going to do things differently. Now it's not going to be about law anymore. From now on, it's going to be about love. Right? Because in the Old Testament, God the Father, He is hard. He is demanding. But now here in the New Testament, God the Son, He's kind, He's loving, and that's great. And that's the way we see this story. As if here Jesus is taking the opportunity in front of the lawyer to say, uh-uh, it's not about law, it's about love. That understanding is why if you say out loud, around people in the 21st century that God expects obedience or that God commands us to turn from our sins, you might be rebuked by them with Scripture. They might say to you, wait a second, that is legalism. That is law. Jesus says, judge not. The New Testament says God is love. Now, people say those things with a lot of confidence, believing that they are taking higher grounds that they are reflecting more the emphasis of Jesus than Jesus' own people do. Here's my question for you. How can we be certain that people who read this passage that way are reading it incorrectly? Like, I'm not just saying that they're reading it incorrectly. I'm 100% certain that they're getting this wrong. But how can I be certain that that description of this that I've just given you is absolutely false? How can I know for sure that Jesus here isn't abolishing the law to replace it with love? Well, I can be absolutely certain about that because Jesus is quoting the Old Testament here. When Jesus is asked, which is the great, greatest commandment, and he starts talking about love, he's not just making stuff up. He's not just saying, hey, it's not all that, that crazy law stuff. It's, it's about love. Instead, Jesus is literally quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. He is literally quoting the, the most important creed of the Old Testament people of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Okay, but that's not everything he says. He also says there's, there's another component, and it's about loving your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus at least adds something. Well, actually, no. No, that too is a quotation from the Old Testament. It's from uh, a book that, that's read all the time at wedding ceremonies, the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So what is Jesus really doing here? He's not hitting the reset button. He's not abolishing law so that love can reign. But what is he doing? Well, he's setting the record straight. He's unveiling a truth that has always been true, and yet has been missed, has been obscured, has been hidden in men's hearts. 
He is showing us that the law of God flows from the love of God, that the law of God reveals the love of God, because the highest call of God's law is the call to love. And it has always been at its heart about love. The work of God from beginning to end has always been an act of love. There's nothing new about a loving God, the God of Scripture from beginning to end, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Mount Sinai, who was fearful to approach, was a God of love and did what he did out of love. From the beginning, God's work has always been an act of love. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So not from the beginning, but before the beginning, which for time-bound people like us is hard to even understand. Where, where do you locate on your timeline what happens before you know, time? But wherever that is, however we conceive of it, at that moment, Paul says, God chose us in him. But he says more than that. In the next breath, he says, in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So the first spark of redemptive history, before there even was such a thing as history, was God's act of love. He knew us in love. He chose us in Love and everything that follows from that follows from his love. Now, like the law itself, that idea of God's choosing is often treated as if it were the opposite of love. But not in Scripture. Not in Scripture. In Scripture, that election, like that law, is treated clearly as an expression of God's love and care. There is no tension, no conflict between that and love. Everything God does, everything He gives, everything He reveals, all of it flows from love. And that's not just true uh, before the beginning of time. That's true in history as well, in the way that God works throughout time. That history of salvation, all of it is driven by love. Jesus himself says in John 3.16, the memory verse that none of us need to work on because we've got it by heart, that it's all about love. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus doesn't just say he sins his son. He says, he gave him, he gave him that gift, that sacrificial act flows, according to Jesus himself, from divine love, from God's affection for us. And the new commandment that Jesus gives us to love one another as he has loved us doesn't need to supersede what God did before. It just builds on top of the love that God has always shown. Right? It's really clear if you read the writings of John, the beloved 
disciple. He explains this in 1 John 4. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. In other words, for John, for all the apostles, for the church, knowing God means loving God and loving one another as He loves us. He showed His love for us through His sacrifice of Himself. He showed His love by sending His Son to pay for our sins. And that act of love, that demonstration of God's love, shows us how we should love one another, how we should act in love as God has always acted in love toward us. The fact that Jesus can take love itself and put it on top of everything else. Say, this is the summary. This is the key. All of the law and the prophets, all of it is summarized here in the command to love. It's incredible. And it's true. Even if you look at the way that we teach those commandments, that Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is divided into two parts, two tables. One concerned with duties towards God. One concerned with duties towards others how to love God as he has loved you, how to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is right, not surprisingly. This is all the law and the prophets. It is as simple as love, which is a relief if you've ever struggled with the question, how do I follow Jesus faithfully? What am I supposed to do? And people do struggle with that, to know, like, how do I live the Christian life? What am I supposed to do? Or even, like, how do I talk about this to other people? How do I share Jesus with other people? Uh, usually the answer to that question is something like uh, study, right? You need to prepare yourself, equip yourself, because there's so many questions, so many strategies and techniques. You need a lot of knowledge. You probably need to spend some time reading some philosophy and thinking about all of the various objections and how to answer them. That's the way we answer that question. But what if it was as simple as this? How do I follow him? Love him. How do I follow him more faithfully? Love him more. Just love him more. And everything follows from that. Now, don't hear that as a guilt trip. I'm not saying if you struggle to know what you ought to do, well, maybe your problem is you just don't love Jesus enough or something like that. Almost the opposite. I think we have a way of, of complicating things, but in Scripture are very straightforward. Right? We see all sorts of difficulties and problems, so much need for specialist knowledge and, and special abilities. But maybe it's as simple as love. Maybe all you need to invest in is love. Maybe that's where your focus ought to be. Love him more and the rest 
follows. Love him more, and you're focused on the most important thing. Great, okay, well, how do I love him more? Because you've probably uh, figured out by now that uh, there's a lot more to love than telling yourself to love. And it seems like oftentimes we put a lot of effort into trying to get ourselves to love what we ought to love and trying to make ourselves not love what we shouldn't. So how do you do this? How do you love him more? By loving others for his sake. By loving your neighbor as yourself. We love him by loving one another, by loving those he's brought us into communion with, by loving those he surrounded us with. When we serve those who are made in his image, we serve him through them. It is as simple as that. And we love in the way that Paul describes love, the love that is patient, the love that endures, the love that is self-sacrificing. That's the way to love him more. Divine love, the love we're called to, the love we try to emulate, that love is a believer. That love is a hoper. That love is an endurer. It's not a getter, it's a giver. That's the kind of love that we're called to. So wherever there's envy or boasting, wherever there's arrogance or rudeness, wherever there's selfishness, irritability, or resentment, there is no love. When you find yourself rejoicing in wrongdoing, love didn't lead you there. Love leads you to the truth. When you're tempted to break your vows because you can't bear it anymore, when you're tempted to stop believing because you can't suspend your doubts anymore, when you're tempted to start over, to cut and run, love didn't lead you there. The thing that led you there is the opposite of love. And while you'll never be perfect, you'll never love him as you should, you'll never love your neighbor as yourself, once you realize what love really is and strive to love Jesus more, and then to love others as he loves you, the whole orientation of your life does change. How can you love like this? How can we have that kind of love? John says, you have it because he first loved you. We love him because he first loved us. Real human love doesn't flow from the human heart. It isn't something we do. Real love doesn't emanate from you the way uh, sunlight emanates from the sun. Right? Your love isn't sunlight. Your love is moonlight. Despite de the appearances when you look up in the sky at night, the moon actually doesn't produce light. The moon only reflects light. When the sun doesn't shine on the moon, the moon is dark and cold. It's only when the sun shines upon it that it becomes radiant. It's only when the sun shines upon the moon that it offers its light to us in the night. We're the same. When God's light doesn't shine upon us, we are dark and we are cold too. But when his light shines upon us, we shine in response. As moonlight is to the sun, so is your love to God's love, a reflection of the love that he has for you. Whatever love we have, whatever love we give, it's a reflection of the love that he first showed us. So if any of us struggle to love, we can learn to love 
by looking to him, by reflecting his love to us. There's a beautiful word that is used in a number of the passages that we've looked at this morning. That word is beloved. When you picture Jesus in this moment being asked this question by this lawyer, it's kind of an amazing thing to think about, the the different layers that are happening here. Like On the one hand, Jesus is teaching about love, but at the same time, he himself is love. Like All his work, as we've seen from election to incarnation, from atonement to glory, all of it manifests divine love. In Ephesians 1, when we read that, you may have seen Paul calls Jesus Beloved, capital B, like a title or a name. He has chosen us in Christ. He has blessed us in the Beloved. But when we look at 1 John 4, he uses that same word. But when he uses it, he's using it in reference to us. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Who is beloved? Is it Christ or is it us? Yes, it is both. Both. Christ and us in Christ, we are beloved of God. The work of God is evidence of the Father's love for the Son. Yes, but it is more than that. The work of the Son is evidence of His love for His people, the church. But it is more than that, too. The work of God is evidence of his love for you. You are beloved. Jesus calls you to love because you are loved. John calls you to love because you are beloved. To know God is to know his love. To know God is to love. That's why when you think about it, we often call the love of Christ redeeming love. We sing about it that way, redeeming love, because this love is what animates all of redemptive history. That whole story of salvation originates and emanates out of divine love, redeeming love. So it's tempting to go back to where we started, that idea of conflict, that tension between agape and eros, between divine love and human love, and tell ourselves that that maybe the thing to take away from all of this is that we need to turn away from human love and embrace divine love instead. Harden ourselves to the loves we find in this world and live only for the love of the next world. St. Augustine thought so. In his confessions, he writes about the grief that he felt after the death of a friend. And it was such a hard thing to endure, so much pain, that he derived a lesson from that experience, a a maxim that C.S. Lewis summarized this way. Do not let your happiness depend on anything you may lose. If love is to be a blessing, not a misery, it must be for the only beloved who will never pass away. Don't love the things of this world. Don't love what can be lost. Instead, love what can never be lost. Instead, love God. A lot of us think this way, especially if we've been hurt by love, especially if we've been rejected 
if we feel ourselves to be unloved, then it seems wise to harden yourself against that potential for pain and to tell yourself the comfort of God's love is that even if none of these people love me, fine, I don't love them either. God loves me and I love him and that's all I need. That will never pass away. C.S. Lewis says, that's not Augustine channeling Christ. That's Augustine still being a stoic in his head, still thinking wrongly about love, thinking wrongly because not thinking as Christ did. Christ didn't look at Jerusalem and say, this place doesn't love me, but that's fine. I don't love it either. I love the Father. That's who I love. He'll never pass away. All this, forget about it. No, he wept over Jerusalem. He wept. He grieved deeply. It's always been incredible to me that Jesus grieves the the death of Lazarus. Right? And you're thinking, well, you're like literally about to resurrect him. Save those tears. He grieves that death despite everything that's about to happen. And if that's true, he's invested. Right? He loves in a way that's different from what Augustine told himself. At the end of his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes about that, that pain, that sacrifice that love often requires, that Jesus himself experiences because of love. Lewis says, we shall draw nearer to God, not by trying to avoid the sufferings inherent in all loves, but by accepting them and offering them to him, throwing away all defensive armor, If our hearts need to be broken, and if he chooses this as the way in which they should break, so be it, he says. But of course, that's in this life. There's a great truth about love in the next life that we also have to know. Because instead of superseding and replacing human loves, what God does with human love is very different. Divine love doesn't replace those other things. It perfects them. It completes them. It doesn't make everything that we loved in this life worthless in comparison. Suddenly, it makes that love more valuable. Lewis puts it this way. He says, we were made for God only by being in some respect like him, only by being a manifestation of his beauty, loving kindness, wisdom, or goodness has any earthly beloved excited our love. It is not that we have loved them too much, but that we did not quite understand what we were loving. It is not that we shall be asked to turn from them so dearly familiar to a stranger. When we see the face of God, we shall know that we have always known it. He has been a party to, has made, sustained, and moved moment by moment within all our earthly experiences of innocent love. All that was true love in them was, even on earth, far more his than ours, and ours only because his. In heaven, there will be no anguish and no duty of turning away from our earthly beloveds, first, because we shall have turned already from the portraits to the original, from the rivulets to the fountain from creatures he made lovable to love himself. But, secondly, because we shall find them all in him, 
By loving him more than them, we shall love them more than we do now. Well, at the end of last year, we talked about how Christ doesn't just save us from our sin, but also saves us for something, that he restores to us our full humanity. And I think those words of Lewis's kind of help explain how it is that God does that. In this life, every innocent love, imperfect as it is, points to God. So that when we see him face to face, as Paul says we will in 1 Corinthians 13, we will find that we have already glimpsed him, that he is no stranger to us because we have known him and his love in the love that we have shown for one another and that we have felt from one another as well. And in the life to come, all those loves, which were types and shadows, which were copies, as Lewis says, pointing to the original, the alpha and the omega, all of those loves will be perfected and fulfilled by his perfect love. We talk about love, but we struggle to know what love truly is, because in this life, our path is illuminated at best by moonlight. But in the presence of the sun, when we feel his love full upon us, then as Paul says, we will know fully, even as we have been fully known. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.